Uh, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to join me in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I'll read from verses 3 through 11 this morning, and then we'll pray and uh, look at the text together. Um, once again, that's 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name is Mike Kezerowski. I serve as the lead pastor here at FAC, and it would be a wonderful privilege uh, to meet you if we don't know each other. Um, let me encourage also you who may call FAC home and intend regularly to be on the lookout for people who are unfamiliar, faces that you may not know, and um, just extend a greeting to them as well to people that you don't know. Uh, I believe as a family, it's our responsibility as a whole to uh, welcome the incomer. And so uh, please, I would encourage you at some point this morning, just say hi, strike up a conversation with perhaps somebody that you don't know, uh, even if they have also been attending for quite some time. Um, once again, we'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. Uh, let's go ahead and look to God's word and then spend some time seeking uh, wisdom of God through his word. Starting in verse 3, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us on him. We have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you this morning with the understanding that we do not have what it takes to face a broken world of affliction and suffering. Our resources are small in comparison to the giant waves of grief that we face in this life. So we come to you in dependence and in reliance that you will supply all of our needs. We pray that by the power of your spirit, your word would encourage us this morning to endure and show us your magnificent character and nature. It's through Jesus' name that we pray all of these things. Amen. In April of uh, 1956, the famous author C.S. Lewis entered into a marriage uh, with an American poet uh, named Joy Davidman. Within the first year of their marriage, uh, Joy was diagnosed with cancer. And shortly after their fourth anniversary, she passed away from the illness. Um, Through this experience, Lewis found himself to be inconsolable. And he even wrestled with his own disbelief or his own belief in God through this season of life. 
And so in response, he, he started finding whatever blank notebooks he could find in his house and just started reflecting and jotting down notes in these empty notebooks. And uh, these notebooks would later go on to be published in a book called A Grief Observed. It's a small book. You could probably read it in one sitting if you had a couple hours to spare. But it, it recounts Lewis's raw experience with this particular instance of grief and sorrow. Towards the beginning of the book, he states how much his faith had been shaken. He, he regrettably admits that his faith was built like a house of cards and that he struggled to find any kind of coping mechanism that would dull his pain. He, he even bemoaned the fact that even his own reflection time of writing in these notebooks wasn't helping uh, him cope. Uh, this is what he writes on page 38 of the book. He, he says, why do I make room in my mind for such filth and nonsense? Do I hope that if feeling disguises itself as thought, that I shall feel less? Aren't all these notes the senseless writhings of a man who won't accept the fact that there is nothing we can do with suffering except to suffer it? Who still thinks there is some device, if only he could find it, which will make pain not to be pain? It doesn't really matter whether you grip the arms of the dentist chair or let your hands lie on your lap. The drill drills on. Lewis brings to light the glaring truth that no matter what, suffering happens. It's part of the very experience of life. It is an experience that not a single soul is exempt from. And much like Lewis, we vainly grasp for coping mechanisms that uh, might just happen to deaden the pain for a moment, but fail to be the ultimate answer of our grief. This is why the Apostle Paul, one of the most afflicted men to ever walk the planet, um, does not draw our attention in this passage to yet another coping mechanism, a hopeless coping mechanism or attitude. But you'll notice that he instead draws our attention to the person and character of God himself. It's imperative to note in this passage these verses that we're looking at this morning, while they do carry great practical value and advice and are a help to us, ultimately are a testimony, a testament to the nature and the character of God. Paul writes this as a prayer of thanksgiving to God for who he is. God is the central character in this passage. Yes, Paul is the afflicted one, but his attention isn't on his affliction first and foremost, but rather his attention is on God. He walks through the passage and he explains who God is and what God does and why he does it. And then Paul moves to himself and shows how this practically plays out on a personal level, how he has experienced this firsthand in a very specific experience. And so let's walk through those together, starting in verse 3. Paul mentions who God is. We're talking about the very nature of God, which is important because God will always act according to his nature and character. 
His character doesn't change. He's what we would call immutable. While we change as people, right, our personalities change, our character changes, uh, God's character never changes. And this is important because if we know who God is, if we know of his unchanging character and nature, then we can trust in what he will do. Right, And then many people feel this temptation uh, to, to doubt God, if you will, uh, but he's unchanging. And so we can depend on him in our times of, of need when we need comfort. Uh, God is the central character. Many of us feel the temptation in the church to address even what's known as felt needs. But we must keep God and his character as revealed in Scripture as the central piece of our theology and the felt needs will follow through if we under truly understand who God is. And so according to Paul in verse three, who is God? Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. First, the father of mercies, the father of mercies. It's important to note that God's attitude towards the broken world is a stance, a posture, if you will, of compassion, even sadness in a sense, because it's a sad thing. It's a sad thing when you, when you create something to work in a certain way and then it breaks It it goes on functioning improperly. It continues on in a dysfunctional manner. If you were to create something that breaks, this would be a sad thing. And this is exactly what has happened in the world. God created it by his word to, to work and to function and to in a proper orderly manner. And then sin entered the world and it broke. And this is sad. God's compassion or mercies, it's, it's the desire of God to take action. He sees that it's broken and he wants to do something about it. It's, it's, it calls him to action uh, in regards to the suffering of the, of the broken world. He is compassionate. He, he, he wants to fix this. He is the father of mercies. But in his ultimate endeavor to fix it, which he does and will do through that, we also read that he is the God of all comfort, the God of all comfort to call him the God of all comfort is to say that he is the ultimate source of true comfort, the source of any kind of comfort that you need in times of affliction can be found in the presence of God. And to call him the God of all comfort means that there is no full comfort that you will find in anything else. You can look for comfort in all the wrong places and you will never fully be satisfied. We often run to other sources of comfort, right? Like food or alcohol or addictions or spending money or binge watching TV How many of us just want to curl up in a ball on our bed under the warm covers and just watch as much Netflix as we possibly can? According to Pastor Scott, some people turn to socks, apparently, for their comfort. Some people turn to sleep for their comfort. 
And such things, and this is where the deceit comes in, such things may actually bring comfort to us, but they bring comfort to us in a fleeting moment because it doesn't take long to recognize uh, those sources of comfort at their face value. That They're nothing more than a cheap anesthetic which temporarily takes away the pain for a moment only to leave you sorrowful once more after the effect wears off. This is why addictions develop, right? Because we, we, we taste a small bit of limited comfort and we want another hit of it. And so we keep going back to the source that doesn't ultimately satisfy. When you run to those things for your comfort, you're wasting your time because it's go, not going to provide the ultimate comfort in which you seek. None of those comforts are the true source of all comfort. Only God is the God of all comfort. And so we don't need those things as a source of comfort because we have a source of God uh, in God where comfort first and foremost is not something that he does, but something that he is. Once again, it's in his very nature that he is the God of all comfort. And so it will never run out. He is an endless well of comfort. And to know God and to, and to bask in his presence is to experience the fullness of comfort. It's in his very nature. And once again, we know that God will always act according to his nature. And so Paul tells us in verse three, who God is, he is the God of all comfort. And then he follows up with what God does. What does he do in verse four? The God of all comfort comforts us in all of our affliction. Essentially, he doesn't withhold his comfort from us. And so if God is the God of all comfort, which means that he's the only true source of comfort we need, and he comforts us in all of our affliction, then there's nothing that we experience in the broken world that cannot be touched by God's comfort. There's nothing that we can experience that is out of reach of God. There is no amount of comfort, or sorry, there's no amount of suffering where God looks at us and says, I'm sorry, you're on your own. There's, there's nothing that I can do to help you in this situation. No, he is the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our afflictions. And this was personal for Paul. Right? Keep in mind that this was written at a very specific time, in a specific place, by a specific person, for a specific purpose. There is a general application of this. We can look at this in the very general sense, but Paul in this passage is actually speaking to a very specific type of affliction. And he gives us a hint down in verse five. He speaks about sharing abundantly in Christ's sufferings. What does this mean? What does he mean by this? These are sufferings that are correlated or as a result of following Jesus. And Jesus knows what, or Paul knows what this is like. Because when Jesus called Paul to be an apostle, to be his representative, to be his messenger in the, in the, uh, to the Gentile world in Acts 9, Jesus instructs, uh, he tells Paul, you, you, Paul is my chosen instrument. I have called him. And then immediately he follows up that call 
with another statement. Jesus says, I have called him. He's my chosen instrument for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. How would you feel if you received a job and then said, oh, by the way, you're going to suffer. This is going to hurt. This is a painful road. Paul's suffering is tied to the calling on his life. We get the same flavor when Jesus is teaching and instructing his listeners that if anyone would follow him, they must take up their cross. There's a specific kind of suffering and affliction that goes with the territory of following Jesus. When you follow Jesus and when Jesus tells you to pick up your cross and follow him, it's safe to assume that there's going to be pain involved. But here's the wonderful thing here in 2 Corinthians 1 about sharing in Christ's sufferings, sharing in the sufferings that come to us as a result of following Christ, is that not only will following Christ bring us suffering and pain, but we will also share abundantly in his comfort. And so if our call to follow Jesus is a source of affliction or, or pain, it will also be a source of Comfort that matches and not just matches, but, but overflows to meet our needs of suffering. So we can rest assured that whatever pain we experience as a result of following Jesus, we will be met with this overflowing source of comfort. The picture that we get in this passage is that of a, of a flood of consolation. My, my kids, they love Splash Lagoon. And their favorite thing at Splash Lagoon is the wave pool. We'll pay like 60 bucks for the entire day just to sit in a pool that throws waves at you every five minutes. But they love the sensation of the waves just smacking them in the face. And this is the illustration that we actually see this idea of being abundantly comforted, overflowingly comforted is just these waves of comfort coming and smacking us right in the face. So much so that we can't even handle it. What verse 5 teaches us as we receive floods of consolation is that God's role is not to help us escape the moment of affliction. His interest is not escapism, if you will, because affliction is in the very nature of following Jesus. Rather, God's role in all of this is to aid us in persevering through affliction. He doesn't whisk us away from the trouble, but instead provides all that we need to endure. He says, I love you, little one. And I know that it's hard to follow me. And I know it's a tall task what I've asked you to do. But would you trust that anything you face in this life, I will rise to the occasion and give you the comfort that you need to endure. If anybody, once again, could speak of this experience of endurance, it was Paul. There's probably not a single person in this room who's experienced uh, as much affliction as Paul. He suffered imprisonment, shipwreck, desertion, nakedness, coldness, hunger. Paul's life was one of perpetual death, yet he can write in the Corinthians that God is the God of all comfort and that he comforts us in all of our affliction. 
Never once was Paul without the comfort of God, without the resources he needed to endure. And and even though this was a challenging endeavor for Paul to be called by Jesus and suffer at his name's sake, Paul recognizes why God does it. God does this. He comforts Paul in all his apostolic affliction so that Paul could comfort others who are in any affliction. How could Paul do this? Well, because he had seen it all. There's no affliction that these Corinthians could have possibly gone through that Paul hadn't already experienced. With everything that they might experience, Paul had the ability to say, I've been there. And I can tell you that I felt God's comfort in that moment, and now you can too. You see, Paul's affliction was the very means by which the Corinthians were ministered to. And if you recall from last week, I mentioned that some believers in the Corinthian church actually challenged Paul's legitimacy as an apostle because he suffered so much. But what Paul claims here is that the suffering is actually a central component to his ministry, and it's ultimately for their good. When the Corinthians claim that Paul's suffering is delegitimizing, Paul actually says, my suffering is proof that you're getting the real deal. John Piper, I actually just had a friend send me a quote through a text message yesterday from John Piper. And in the quote, uh, Piper talks about preaching. He talks about homiletics and, and how he doesn't put, he, he, he loves homiletics. He believes in homiletics, the ability to preach. But he said, a thousand sorrows, a thousand sorrows teaches a man to preach. A thousand sorrows teaches a man to preach. Sorrow shapes the messenger of God. It chisels out what the apostle or the preacher or the evangelizer or the messenger of the gospel is. And so what we see here in this passage is that affliction is actually essential for authentic ministry. Just as the blade of a sword is forged in fire and hammered out, a useful tool for the gospel must go through the flames and pressure. Flames and pressure must be applied. Because without that, the gospel worker knows not of God's comfort in the trying times and therefore cannot minister to God's people when they face trying times. All in all, other believers are the beneficiaries of our comfort that we receive. God ultimately uses our suffering and his comfort as a way to build in to his kingdom. So this is the concept of comfort that Paul writes about. In verses 3 through 7, Paul explains what comfort looks like in theory. It's a conceptual idea, right? That we praise God because he is the God of all comfort and he comforts us in all of our affliction. And this comfort is then used to minister to the greater body of the believers. That's what comfort looks like in theory. And then Paul takes verses 8 to 11 uh, and shows that he has some skin in the game here. He, He puts some skin on it. He explains what this looks like in action. Paul explains his own credibility in verses 8 through 11. He says, I've experienced this, and so let me tell you how I've experienced this. Let me tell you about how the God of all comfort has played out in my own life. 
Paul takes this concept of comfort and brings forward a very grueling and specific example that deeply under, uh, deeply influenced his understanding of suffering, where he realized the purpose of his pain. Paul describes this moment, an event that happened to him in Asia. We don't have the specific event detailed, but we do know of its intensity. Paul says that through this event, that he was so utterly burdened beyond his strength. Utterly burdened. We get this picture of of something being burdened, something being weighed down. A heavy weight. Before Sarah and I were married, I used to um, go with her family to pick out uh, Christmas trees for them. Now, their house in their family room, they had a, at the peak a 15 foot high ceilings. Uh, and so they would always try and search for the biggest tree that they could possibly find. I mean, these things were utterly massive. And I will never forget the biggest one that they ever tried to bring home because of what happened. Uh, on one occasion, we picked out the tree and, and, and they loaded it up on top of this Honda Odyssey. And it was comical because the tree on both ends was hanging over the edge of the car. <laughs> if you've ever seen Christmas Vacation, th- this is a-, a literal picture of what that looked like. Um, and then we all eight had to load into the car. The rear bumper couldn't have been more than six or seven inches off the ground. And that was before I got in the car. Um, so we take off from the tree farm and I'm, I don't think we get more than five miles down the road before the car breaks down and leaves us stranded with the biggest tree I've ever seen in my life. It r- rivaled the Rockefeller tree. Right? We were carrying this physical burden and we couldn't go on any longer. The car couldn't even handle it. In our life, we, we know of this experience, right? The physical burden that weighs us down. Paul speaks in a broader sense to the intense emotional, mental, and spiritual burden. In this specific instance, the burden was so great that Paul broke down. He, he had nothing left in the tank. He experienced this crushing, paralyzing weight, and it was so heavy that it weighed him down, notice this, beyond his own strength. This is critical to understand that this was beyond uh, Paul's own strength. Our culture's advice to those who experience such a burdensome weight is to look within. That's what they would instruct Paul, right? In our own culture, turn inward to the self, to your inner being. Dig far down and draw up all the resources internally that you possibly can find. Turn inward and tap deep into your inner strength and your inner power and your inner effort. But what happens when the burden is so great and the weight is so heavy that all of our inward power and strength runs out? that there's not enough when we come to the end of the line, when there's no amount of self-help books that will get us through the predicament we're in. 
Where do we turn then? What do we do then? Paul is saying, I tried to depend on my own strength and the affliction was greater than my strength. It was too great. I had no strength left to give. Perhaps you've heard that phrase that God will never give you something that you can't handle. Paul would say that's a load of garbage. Because here in this moment, he's saying, I'm experiencing something beyond my own strength. I've been given a, a, a task that's beyond, uh, beyond myself. I can't handle it. He tried to stand and handle it, but he was crushed. So much so that he despaired of life itself. This means that he saw no logical or natural way out of his predicament. He, li- he linked this exper- experience to that of being dead. He might as well be dead because there's no way out. He, he likens it to a sentence of death. In, in other words, he petitioned to live, and he felt as so this petition was denied. Paul came to grips in this moment with his own morality and thought, well, this is it. My time is done. I'm going to die. There was no resource that he could throw at his affliction to remedy it. There wasn't enough money in the world that would save him. There weren't enough doctors with enough knowledge and wisdom in the world that could remedy the situation. There wasn't enough strength in the world that could hold him up. All worldly hope was lost. There was no resource that Paul could tap into in his time of need except one, which Paul goes on to explain At the end of verse 9, Paul comes to the powerful conclusion that there was a purpose behind his pain. He says at the end of verse 9, but that was to make us not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. The reason Paul was given something that he couldn't handle, the reason that he was led into a situation, a desperate situation that left the tank empty and sapped all of his strength was so that he was forced to rely on God's strength. And here we can see the value of suffering and that it teaches us of dependency. Our pain has a way of taking our attention off of ourselves and turning it to God. It has a way of taking our inward focus and redirecting it outward to God, to the true source of all comfort. Our pain is necessary to dismantle our self-centric worldview so that God can rebuild a worldview that turns to him and depends on him who is the God of all comfort. C.S. Lewis speaks to this point in his book, A Grief Observed. He he talks about the nature of trying times and he reflects on uh, the proper understanding of trials. In this context, as I mentioned earlier, Lewis referred to his mindset as a house of cards. And he he came to realize that, that the integrity of his house of cards were weak and the quality of his dependency and faith in God was weak. And he didn't, he didn't know this until he experienced the loss of his life. I want you to listen to what Lewis's reflections are on this. Lewis writes, God has not been trying an experiment on my faith or love in order to find out their quality. He knew it already. It was I who didn't know. In his trial, 
He makes us occupy the dock, the witness box, and the bench all at once. He always knew that my temple was a house of cards. His only way of making me realize the fact was to knock it down. God brings us to our knees in humility so that we will turn to him in order to restore us under the strength of his fortress. He must break the twigs that we've built as a shelter that aren't nearly as secure or strong as we think they are. And some of us may be tempted to ponder such things and say, how could a loving God ever permit such pain? Or how could a loving God even perhaps inflict such pain? My response to that question is how could a loving God not do that? If God knows that he is the source of all security and he knows that he is the source of all comfort, that we will be most satisfied and we will be most fulfilled and we will be most joyful when we are dependent on God. And if pain is the channel by which we depend on God because we are a a stubborn, thick-headed people, then it is an act of love from God to bring us through pain, to comfort us in that, to help us endure so that we may come out on the other side, more dependent on him than we were before. It would be rather unloving of God if he knew the answer to our ultimate fulfillment and didn't take action to bring us to that point. And so, yes, the process may hurt but trust that God is dependable. He is someone worth relying on, which is how Paul finishes. Paul explains why God is worth depending on. Right? What are God's credentials? Why should we rely on him and not our own inner strength or something else? Why do we rely on God? Paul says we rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us on him. We have set our hope that he will deliver us again. What qualifies God as someone we can rely on? We can lay our foundation on God because he is a raiser of the dead. God has endless credentials, but Paul has one thing in mind. Paul could go on and on forever and write about why we can put our hope and our trust in God. But this is the only one that we need. All of those are valid and they're true. All the other reasons, but we only need one reason. And the reason being is that God raises the dead. There's so many other truths that we could explore about why God is trustworthy, but this one alone is not enough. And you'll notice that the verb raises is present tense. His resurrection power is not described in the past tense as if it's something that he did. It's just something that he does. It's who he is. The way this is written actually expresses that this is a permanent attribute of God. Once again, we turn our attention back to God's character, his nature. God is one who raises the dead. And he demonstrated this with Jesus on the cross. And God demonstrated this in the life of Paul. 
Paul says, I faced an impossibly deadly situation and God delivered me. He likened it to resurrection. When Paul thought there was death, there was actually life. Paul says we can rely on God's strength and power because he has the ability to raise people from the dead. And he has a track record of raising from the dead. Three times Paul explains that God delivers. He delivered us in the past and he's going to do it again in the future. One commentator writes that this is actually why we can find comfort in God. They write that the experience of God's deliverance in the past and the corresponding surety of his deliverance in the future is the comfort of his people in the present. This is our hope in life and death that we have a God who has delivered before and he'll do it again in this life. And yes, there will be a day where death gets the best of us. Death will get one more shot in as our final enemy. But even when that happens, God will deliver once more and raise us from the grave with the very power that raised Jesus Christ from the grave. And those who believe in Jesus and have depended on God will be raised to a life of eternal satisfaction and glory. And so I know that there are many of you that are experiencing pain and suffering, and I would urge you to turn to God for all comfort, for all of your comfort in a practical sense. But perhaps there's a bigger affliction here today. And it's an affliction of being separated from God. You can seek comfort for all of your pain in the world and none of it will ever be satisfied until you are in Christ. And so as you leave from this place today, would you turn to Jesus and say, Lord, I recognize that I will never be fully comforted, fully satisfied until I have put my hope and faith and trust in you as my Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us comfort in our pain. Father, and that you have provided a solution for endurance. Lord, we trust that you will see us through. Father, I think of Psalm 23 as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Lord, uh, we don't walk alone. We are led by a shepherd in Christ. We don't avoid the valley but we are led through it. And so I thank you, Lord, for the very practical nature of this passage, Father, but I would ask that it would point us to the greatest affliction, the affliction of our own sin, which leads to death and separates us from you, Father. If there's anyone in here who has not turned to you for such an affliction yet, would they do that today? And would they put their faith and trust in Jesus? And in your holy name I pray, amen.